You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, where we talk with some of the security industry's biggest influencers about what is shaping the cyber landscape and what is top of mind for the C-suite and other key security decision makers. I'm Ann Johnson. And today we are going to discuss the evolution of cyber resilience and what organizations can do today to build resilience for the future. I am joined by Sunil Yu. Sunil is the Chief Information Security Officer and Head of Research at Jupiter One, a cyber asset management and governance solution provider who deliver visibility and security into entire cyber asset portfolios. Sunil is a security innovator with over 30 years of experience creating, breaking, and fixing computer and network systems. He previously served as a CISO in residence at YL Ventures, where he advanced the firm's ideation support of up-and-coming entrepreneurs, vetted candidates and concepts in the pipeline, and amplified the firm's value-add services to its portfolio companies. He serves on the board of the FAIR Institute, teaches cybersecurity technologies as an adjunct professor, and he co-chairs Art into Science, a conference on defense. Sunil also advises many security startups on their journey to success. Sunil holds a master's degree in electrical engineering from Virginia Tech and a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering and economics from Duke University. He is a certified CISSP and a certified GSEC. Welcome to Afternoon Cyber Tea, Sunil. Thanks, Anne. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. I was really excited to get you on the show because I've seen you present, heard you speak many times, and you're a wonderful storyteller. And the content you provide is so rich and dense and gives us a new way to think about the industry. So let's go right into it. Cyber resilience is something that the security industry has been talking about for a long while. But over the last few years, the concept has evolved quite a bit. You have played a really big role in shaping the conversation on cyber resilience, and you've developed multiple frameworks that leaders use today. So from your words, how has the conversation evolved? What are some of the paradigm shifts we are seeing in the industry? And how will that necessitate a new approach to cyber resilience? Sure, and so one of the challenges that I saw, uh, and one of the reasons why I tried to shake up the ecosystem is because I didn't see the conversation evolving as quickly as it needed to. What I uh, saw in the market was the uh, propensity for us to sell solutions or for vendors to sell solutions that really solved old problems. And one of the frameworks that I created was this thing called the Cyber Defense Matrix. And it's a simple mental model that helps us understand uh, all the different things that the vendors are selling us. And it became pretty clear as I was mapping out all these different vendors that there was a massive gap in the market for solutions that help us recover against cyber attacks. And as I studied this matrix and as I tried to understand why this was the case, there was a revelation that came about in terms of why we might be missing something in that space uh, from a timing standpoint and just our thinking standpoint. So this paradigm shift is really, as we move into this stage of recover, as we, as we try to tackle the, the space around recover, just a massive gap that's in the market made it very clear that we needed to think differently about how we tackle that problem. So when you think about then that, when you think about actually the recovery aspect from organizations and the response aspect for organizations, can you tell us a little bit about what your approach is and why you think it's important and why you think we need it now? Sure, yeah. So 
the way to understand this requires a little bit of storytelling, as you were uh, hinting at earlier. And it became evident as, as I was looking at the track record of history or the trend of history in cybersecurity that we're starting to emerge into this era of resiliency. So to be able to explain this, let me go back in time. Back in the 80s, one of the things that we dealt with was just the introduction of new uh, IT into our environment. The first set of questions or problems that we had was just understanding, what, are, what do I have? What did I just buy? And what business function does it support? Then, you fast forward 10 years, and in the 90s, we started seeing viruses, we started seeing people send us I love you messages and walk into our networks. And so we needed solutions to be able to tackle that set of problems. And, and the market uh, delivered on that by delivering things like firewalls and antivirus and, and uh, configuration guidelines and so on. You fast forward 10 more years, we're now inundated with alerts from all these tools, and we're trying to find intrusions based on those alerts. So because of the difficulty we have with that, we ultimately ended up coming up with things like uh, SIMs and intrusion detection systems. Fast forward 10 more years, we're now in the 2010s, and we're having to fight fires all the time. We have to assume breach, and the uh, the tools and the, the people that we need are firefighters and firefighting tools. And what was interesting in this pattern is the 80s, we had an identify problem. The 90s, we had a protect problem. The 2000s, we had a detect problem. And the 2010s, we had a respond problem. For those who are familiar with the words I just used, that is four of the five functions of the NIST cybersecurity framework. So then naturally, the next era, the 2020s, the era that we're in now, is a recover problem. And I'll use the word resiliency as a, as a proxy for the reco- word recover, but the idea is that we're now in the age of resiliency. In the last decade, we were in the age of incident response. All right, well, we're in this new age, and we're going to need new solutions because the solutions of the past doesn't seem to address the problems of the present. And it also requires us to think differently about how we tackle those particular problems as well. So when you think about, you know, as organizations are evolving these approaches, right, and we're all familiar with the terms if we've been in the security industry, but I'm sure, you know, organizations think they need to have some philosophical conversations and then translate those into investment and action. What are some of the conversations organizations should be having? Things that are practical, right? Um, because it's one thing to have philosophical conversations and it helps people, right? Get conceptually understand what they need to do. But how do those translate into prioritized investments you think leaders should be making to improve their cyber resilience? Well, the the philosophical, the, the kind of conversations that we need to be having now is around um, what is the new way of thinking to tackle this new problem that we have. And, and by the way, as I mentioned with the timing, um, the, the timing is now, and we're starting to see the emergence of recover-oriented or resiliency-oriented attacks. The, the epitome of that in our world today is ransomware. And so uh, that is really driving these conversations beyond just the philosophical ones into uh, specific needs for investment and action to address the ransomware threat. So if you ask many leaders, uh, whether they're in security or not, you will hear that ransomware is a pretty prevalent threat because it's affecting so many different organizations and so many different institutions across the board. And it's having some real-life, real-world effects. So it's driving now this question of how do we actually improve our resiliency to these attacks. But as I mentioned before, one of the challenges that we have is the way that we're approaching that it's the old way of thinking about tackling that is pervading the the uh, approaches that we're trying to take. 
where instead of trying to design new types of solutions or new types of approaches to address the recover or the resiliency aspect of things, we're actually just focusing on more protect, detect, and respond, the older approaches of the yesteryears and this new problem that we're facing. So when you think about that then, and um, you think about protect, detect, and respond, and the fact that organizations continue right down that path, how do you shake them up? How do you get them to change their thinking and move to a point where they realize, because I, I, as you know, I've written and blogged a lot and spoken about cyber resilience for the past four years. And as the, you need to understand where your critical business systems are and get them back online as quickly as possible, you know, is the, is the core of it, right? But how do you get organizations moving when they're really tied into the past technologies and the, and the past methodologies and the past architectures? Yeah, so I took a different approach, which attempted to take a complete break from our old way of thinking. And if I were to distill it into a, a common framework that we in security are, are familiar with, I used a whole different paradigm or a whole different uh, perspective. And the old way of thinking is what we call the CIA triad in security. And CIA stands for confidentiality, integrity, and availability. The new paradigm or the new way of thinking one that I tried to take a complete break from is what I call the DIE triad. And DIE stands for Distributed, Immutable, Ephemeral. And the acronym, by the way, is intentional as well. So the, the DIE triad takes a complete break from the CIA triad. And specifically, one of the things I'm arguing is we try to take a DIE approach first before we try to secure anything. And this may sound heretical to a lot of people in security, because we oftentimes think security first and so on and so on. But I am actually arguing we need to take security, do security second, with the primary emphasis being how do we make some, some system or some data or whatever it is that we're trying to uh, deal with more distributed, more immutable, and more ephemeral. Unfortunately, we can't always seem to get to DI, like just as much as you can't secure everything um, completely, we can't also make something completely DIE either. So it's going to be a spectrum in terms of this great, uh, this range between something that uh, requires CIA versus something that requires DIE. But the idea is, let's move a step, step towards DIE first, and failing that, we then try to secure whatever. Um, and, and if this isn't clear for the uh, listeners, let me, let me give you some examples of what, what I mean by this. So the more something is DIE, the less CIA that's necessary. The more something is ephemeral, let's say, um, a two-factor token, as an, as an example, then the less I need to worry about the confidentiality of that two-factor token, because by the time it's revealed, uh, within a couple seconds, it's no longer confidential, right? Uh, if something is highly immutable, then I don't need to worry about the integrity of that, of that anymore. And if something is highly distributed, then I don't need to worry about the availability of any one thing. So the, again, the perspective is consider DIE and CIA to be on two ends of the spectrum. And the goal here is to, instead of trying to secure everything, make something DIE first. Where do you think organizations are on that spectrum? <laughs> uh, it depends on the, um, not, actually, not, it doesn't depend on the maturity of the organization. Um, it actually depends more on the, uh, how new or how modern the organization is as it relates to the tech stack. There's a huge migration to cloud-based environments and cloud being both on the infrastructure side, on the platform side, as well as on the software side. And as organizations adopt more on the cloud and, and SaaS side of the world, 
I think they are actually uh, embracing more of the concepts of DIE without really even realizing it. The cloud itself is far more distributed, immutable, and ephemeral, um, and in fact, it's designed that way, right? If you think about the nature of um, doing uh, using somebody else's resources, you want to design it to be distributed, immutable, and ephemeral. Conversely, when you build on-prem, you end up with a lot of things that um, aren't as distributed, immutable, and ephemeral. And as a result, you have to protect the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of those resources. So do you think that, you know, I'm always trying to be an optimist, right? I always am working to be an optimist in cyber, and I agree with you, by the way, that things need to be more ephemeral, that we need to have more just-in-time privileges that expire very quickly, that we need to actually have conditional relationships with data and with access. How long do you think it's going to take the industry to start moving in that direction? And in doing so, do you, what's going to get in their way? Oh, actually, so funny thing is, I think that what's going to get in the way is uh, security people, because effectively, we in security are well vested and well employed and well rewarded for doing CIA. And what I'm actually arguing is that on the other end of the spectrum, we have a, a situation where we are not going to be where we lower our burden for security. And one way, general way that we can think about the, the type of resources that we oftentimes build in these environments that are are on-prem, is to think about those as long-lived resources that we we have to care about. And one of the analogies I use is uh, that we oftentimes build pets. And these pets are things that we have to care about. We give them a name and so on and so forth. And so because uh, organizations build a lot lot of pets, we are veterinarians within our IT organizations. Instead of being veterinarians, uh, what I'm actually suggesting that we do is become more pet control officers, where we control and we are very deliberate about uh, how many pets that we choose to adopt. Whenever an organization uh, adopts a new pet, and and they have every prerogative to do so, uh, we take on a new burden. And that burden is to take care of that pet and to ensure that they're well-fed and they get veterinary care and so on and so forth. Uh, As you know, for many folks, there are many people who adopted a pet during COVID. (laughs) They're they're regretting that choice, unfortunately, for, for some folks. But they can't just you know, it's horrible to think about leaving a pet, you know, um, without care, right? In fact, they should be prosecuted for that. So likewise, in our uh, IT environments, business owners and business um, leads must be very intentional about adopting a new pet. And what we want to be able to do is to just be more cautious or more intentional about when we choose to adopt a pet and not have uh, just pets grow rampantly without, uh, without proper attention. So do you think pets, and I love that analogy, by the way, because I think it's something someone can really understand. Do you think pets are one of the things that leads us to a tremendous amount of technical debt, but also leads us to organizations that have 250 unique security tools in their environment, but it's really unmanageable for them and they're not any more secure? Yeah, and one another way to characterize it is, is our problem today, let's, say, let's take the workforce problem, is the problem that, that we have today more based on not having enough uh, workers in the environment, or is it based on having too many pets in the environment? And I would argue that having too many pets exacerbates the problem far more than just having not enough workers. So similarly, when we have so many pets in our environment, we have to have lots of different tools. Um, now, of course, if they were all the same type of pet, <laughs> then I'm sure it's much easier to scale and to address that. And that's actually where I think the opportunities for uh, cloud providers really shine, because they're not having to deal with thousands of different types of pets. 
uh, they're dealing with a, a certain class. And so they're able to scale that much more effectively than organizations that don't have the resources to do that and have to otherwise deal with um, so many different varieties of pets. So, I th- yeah, I think the fact that we continue to adopt without clear intentions and without in- well, without intentionality results in having this wide range of you know, tools that uh, we don't really have the t- talent or the manpower to be able to, to handle. I think that until we get to the place where people become very attached to their projects, right? And they become very attached to their pets and they don't ever want to give up the project. And I think until we get to the place where people are kind of looking at it holistically and saying, we have way too much in our environment that we're not getting returned from. But that's a really long journey has been my experience. So is there anything, let's assume people are going to keep all their pets. Let's assume those pets aren't going anywhere. What else could they do in the short term? If there were one or two steps, you'd say, look, okay, I acknowledge you're going to keep all your pets, but in addition to your pets, please do these two, one or two things so you can at least start migrating to a new paradigm. Sure. Then this is why I was suggesting in terms of our thinking, changing our thinking around uh, for security from having to feel like you have to secure everything to thinking around how do we incentivize and how do we encourage people to build systems to be distributed and readable and ephemeral instead. And let's take the ephemerality aspect real quickly. The perspective here is that we can, I can tell you when something's about to become a pet just by looking at how, how old the system is. So if a system starts aging, then by just the simple fact that it exceeds a certain time frame makes it more pet-like. And if I'm a, a pet control officer, the way I would look at that is to say, look, this this resource that you created is starting to look more and more like a pet. Can we ensure that we have, if you choose to adopt it, and again, you have every prerogative to do so, then let's make sure that you have the proper veterinary care. Otherwise, we'll have to do something, you know, in the pet control sort of sense to, to ensure that uh, we don't have unintentional propagation. One other analogy I want to throw out there for your listeners to, to help this resonate is consider within your body, you have many different cells. Consider what are your longest living cells in your body. And you have a thought in terms of some of the longest lived cells, like what, what kind of cells might they be? Wow. <laughs> Definitely not skin cells. They're very short-lived. Um, but right. just, yeah. So some of the longest lived cells are your brains, uh, brain cells, right? And that's well-guarded, right? It's, it's secured by a, a skull with a blood-brain membrane and a bunch of other things that help you secure your brain. But your skin cells, which are very short-lived, are entirely exposed. Earlier, you mentioned uh, how, do we, how do we embrace this concept and ensure that um, we control access and so on and so forth. Well, my, my, my argument here for the DIE triad is I don't really care to control access. Think about your skin. The environment has direct access to your skin, right? And it can attack it, and, and the skin cells are actually programmed to DIE um, in such a way that it continues to re- replenish itself and recreate itself without uh, causing harm. Now, consider this one uh, additional piece, which is, what do you call a skin cell that lives too long? I don't know. Well, it's called cancer. <laughs> what do you do? You cut it out, Right. So within our organizations, we need to think more and more around how do we think of these assets uh, in such a way that we are very conscious and deliberate in uh, keeping these assets as ephemeral as possible using one of the attributes of DIE. And when it doesn't become ephemeral, 
you choose, you make a decision. Do I want to keep this asset or not? And uh, the worst case is when you have a situation where um, an asset lives too long and becomes cancer within the organization. It, it metastasizes, and the attackers take advantage of that and find ways to uh, compromise your environment and affect other pets in your environment as well. And that's, that's what we're trying to avoid. We want to avoid a situation where people don't accidentally uh, enable these uh, skin cells to become cancerous and then cause other issues in your body. Yeah, I totally get that. I, you know, it reminds me of a story that I heard from um, one of our customers in Australia. It was talking about the fact that when the railways were built in Australia, they were built by folks who brought over camels to help to help move um, because the supplies that had to be moved were so heavy, right? And there wasn't, this was, you know, a very long time ago. This wasn't in modern times. But now, the but they left the camels behind and the camels are not native, so they've become pests, right? So it reminds me of a lot of our security programs where folks get tooling that's purpose-built. It's purpose-built to solve a specific problem, but over time, that problem doesn't exist any longer. That problem has changed and morphed and the tool they bought is really just a pest in their environment at this point in time. Does that does that make sense to you? <laughs> yeah, it's a funny, funny because uh, just with a flip of the the uh, two letters, you can you can go from pets to pests, right? And what we want to be very clear on is uh, being very intentional to ensure that your pets aren't pests, and as and they become pests when they're unmanaged and they're untreated, and they become this this uh, cancer in the environment. So yeah, that's a great analogy and a great way to think about it as well. Okay, I was just trying to, yeah, conceptualize that. But but I agree with you. Look, the, as security, we have to think differently. Like, what we're doing to date has been reasonably successful, right? We're probably still one step ahead, but there's still a lot of events. There's For every event you see on the news, there's thousands of events that are happening on a daily basis. And we need to change the paradigm in the industry. When I first heard you speak about the DIE concept, I said, yes, that makes perfect sense. It really, really resonated with me. Actually, and can I, can I yeah. uh, chime in on something? So you said Please. we're one step ahead. And I'm not sure who we is here, but if you're referring to security, I would actually say we're all usually one step behind, right? But I believe, and went one step behind from the attackers, but there is a part of the organization that is uh, persistently one step ahead of the attackers. And that is actually the business. The business has every imperative, every desire to move faster than their competitors, right? And so you could think of the attackers uh, trying to undermine them, whether they're actual competitors or uh, hackers. But the point being, the business is actually highly incentivized to be as fast-moving as possible. And I think the DIE paradigm actually enables that far more than the CIA paradigm. If you think about the speed of the business, the, the, the organization wants to, again, move fast. And uh, having, for example, fewer legacy assets, which are essentially pets, wouldn't that? Don't you think that would enable the business to move faster? Uh, the more legacy assets, the more uh, things that the business accrues that requires CIA, actually slows the business down. So anyway, the the perspective of uh, being one step ahead, I, I think DIE is far more aligned to the business and helping them move faster. And in many ways, that doesn't uh, the the other beauty of the DIE triad is that the business already wants this uh, sort of motion anyway. And it's just a matter of having our security teams and our security leaders think differently about this new paradigm shift and say, how do we enable the business to build systems that are more DIE 
and not so much CIA, which ultimately, again, allows us to have fewer legacy assets to deal with as well as fewer things to secure. Yeah, and I think that's the important part. And when I say we're one step ahead, I mean I know how many breaches we stop on a daily basis versus what actually gets out into the wild. So that's a very specific reference. It has nothing to do with the with the decades of technical debt that organizations have that they can't handle. And to your point, and I love here's what I love about the DIE concept. You cannot secure all that technical debt. But if you make access to that technical debt ephemeral, then you can secure the access. And that's actually more important. Yeah. And the way that the, I would frame that statement is to say, just as much as we can't have something perfectly CIA, we can't have something perfectly DIE either. The goal here is to reduce all the things that we have to otherwise um, secure. And because we can't make something fully DIE, we're going to have to fall back and say, you know what, at least we're, we're going to still have to secure, let's say, the orchestration system. We're going to still have to secure the access, as you're mentioning. There's some elements of which we still have to, uh, may have to s- s- still secure. But what we have to secure is far less than having to secure everything else in your environment. Think about the ratio of your brain cells to your skin cells, or to, to the ratio of long-lived cells in your body to short-lived cells in your body. <laughs> it's something like 0.0001% of your body is long-lived cells. Think about that for a moment. It's that's a that's such a dramatically small ratio compared to what we probably see in most IT environments where you just have a lot of things to have to secure. So trying to drill that down to something that's less or just fewer things to have to corral uh, makes everyone's life easier, especially on the security side. So I want to change topics just and it's not it's something that's just completely tangential. Can we talk about threat intelligence for a minute? I believe, and I think you believe, that collaboration and sharing threat intelligence and doing a better job between private-private sector, public sector, public-private sector is critical on a global basis. What role do you think this type of collaboration plays in the topic of cyber resilience, and what forms or opportunities do you advocate? Sure. So this is, (laughs) I I don't always try to be a contrarian, but I'm going to offer another contrarian thought here, which is uh, in the information, threat intelligence side of the world, we we oftentimes advocate information sharing. And I would make an argument that we need to stop information sharing. Instead, we need to move towards knowledge and wisdom sharing. And the words are very deliberate here. There is what's called the DIKW pyramid, data, information, knowledge, wisdom. And the goal here is to move up that stack. I don't want to keep sharing data and information because that's honestly of low value. That's more of the what. I would rather talk about the how and the why, and the how and the why tie into knowledge and wisdom. When it comes to threat intelligence, there's only so much value in what you discovered. There's much more value in how you discovered it. I don't actually need to know when you find evil, I don't need to know what evil you found but I do want to know the method by which you found that evil. Okay. Similarly, in the, in the vulnerability space, I don't necessarily need to know what you found broken, but I would love to know how you found it. And we oftentimes share tools on the vulnerability space, but we don't necessarily share as many tools or um, patterns in the uh, intrusion, how we found the evil space. And the reason why I bring this up in the context of resiliency is what we need to share more of in the DIE space is going to be the patterns, the design patterns for how we built a system to be more distributed, immutable, and ephemeral. 
the tools and the Lego bricks that we're using aren't actually new. Rather, it's how they're being assembled that are remarkably new and different. An example of that is, I'll use a buzzword, blockchain. Okay, The underlying technology that undergirds blockchain is not, very, is not new. It's how those uh, components were assembled that now create this very distributed and immutable distributed ledger. Now, I haven't figured out exactly that, well, that blockchain isn't very ephemeral, uh, unless you're referring to the cryptocurrency that's on it. But uh, you know, the, the fact that there's uh, a highly distributed and highly immutable design pattern it has really caught the world's attention, and people are starting to really uh, adopt blockchain as a, as a design principle because of the value that it has in those two elements. And so the, the perspective here is that uh, we need a way to share more of these design patterns. Just as much as in threat intelligence, I think we need to share more of the design patterns of how we discovered badness, not just the evidence or the indicators of compromise of badness. Yeah, we talk about that a lot, right? The tools of the trade, the tactics, the techniques, those are more important in a lot of cases than the indicators of compromise or indicators of attack. I, I completely agree with you that we have to get better about sharing how something happened, the actual techniques that are used by the bad actors, because that will tell us, look, the IOCs and the IOAs and those things you can plug into your machine learning systems and they can track something is important. But understanding how the actors are operating is often much more important. And we could, you and I could go on for, like, for that for about next hour, but we, we don't have the next hour. So I know you always have a lot going on. Can you share with your listeners what you're working on right now and what's interesting, exciting to you? Yeah. So actually, uh, maybe I'm going to answer that question with a reference back to the um, point you just made around what we share. I think one of the things that I was hoping from the Cyber Safety Review Board is this perspective of, given these threats, what type of design patterns were most effective in addressing those particular threats? And uh, as, as many of you may know, the Cyber Safety Review Board reviewed Log4j. And unfortunately, I think the whole notion of what were the safety elements that helped, uh, or the design elements that helped contribute to uh, an organization not, getting, not having to deal with the Log4j issues, it got some uh, uh, mention in the report, but it almost was like a second-class citizen. And this goes back to my comment that I think we need to share those more uh, broadly and, and broadcast those out to a much larger audience and, and give them more prominence. Um, and the way I've been thinking about this, and I, I, I emphasized the word safety a couple times here, I think a lot of the things that we do in cybersecurity is actually a safety practice. And unfortunately, um, our, our words don't help us here. We say cybersecurity to mean cyber safety. It's, it's like um, in Spanish, uh, the word for safety and security are the same. But in English, they are distinctly different. And if we were to think about, um, let's say, for example, if we added the word food in front of it, food safety is very different than food security. Food safety is about hygiene. It's about compliance. It's all these best practices for how you uh, work with food. Food security is baby formula and Ukrainian wheat, and, and there's only so much you can do about that. But um, there's a lot of things that one can do about food safety, just as much as I think there's a lot of things that uh, organizations and individuals can do to deal with cyber safety. Um, and the practices that we share, the, the lessons that we learn, uh, the design patterns that, that uh, uh, help us maintain a more safe cyber environment, I think we need to do what we, whatever we can to accelerate the sharing of that kind of 
uh, insight and th- those type of design patterns. Anyway, that's this this distinction between safety and security is something that I've been mulling over to understand that this differences and ultimately help us um, design systems better and to uh, improve our practices overall. Yeah, I agree with you. And by the way, I've heard you talk about that before. And next time I have you on, I will have you on again if you're open to it. Um, let's we can talk about that specifically, and we can also talk about the difference in, in different types of threat intelligence in more depth. But I want to thank you so much for joining us today, Sunil. We um, try to send our listeners off with one or two key takeaways about what you think they can do today. What controls would you put in place if, in your environment today? <laughs> well, I usually uh, end with long live DIE. And uh, the, the perspective here is that um, the one control that you can put in immediately is to have a control that looks at the lifetime of your system and alerts you when something goes past an acceptable time frame. So that acceptable time frame for me at Jupiter One is 24 hours, <laughs> which is re- crazy low. And by the way, my CFO loves that because it means that we don't have resources that are taking up cost, right? Causing more uh, more cost. So the one takeaway is uh, implement DIE by looking at, uh, let's say, E first, the ephemerality, and just track the lifetime of your systems and uh, create alerts on those systems that exceed a certain time frame. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Anne. Glad to be with you. Many thanks to our audience for listening. Join us next time on Afternoon Cyber Tea. So I invited Sunil on the show because I heard him speak a couple of times on the topic that he has of changing the paradigm of how we do security from actually securing everything to making interactions and access more ephemeral so that we actually don't have any permanency in our controls or much less permanency in our controls. It was a fascinating conversation. He's a deep thinker on the topics of, you know, how we think about cybersecurity and what we should be doing in the future. And I'm sure you'll enjoy the episode. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia. Be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.